Welcome to A Pod Upon a Hill. My name is Mr. Vosliatis. This is the audio lecture for 8-1 Notes, Truman and the Cold War. Here we go. You are about to embark upon the great crusade toward which we have striven these many months. The eyes of the world are upon you. Your task will not be an easy one. Your enemy is well trained. He will fight savagely. We'll light our country and all who serve it. And the glow from that fire can truly light the world. We will accept nothing less than full victory. The hopes and prayers of liberty-loving people everywhere march with you. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. So a lot of people were wondering, what would a post-war America look like? If you recall, after World War I, a lot of Americans had to suffer through a brief post-war recession, particularly farmers. And a lot of Americans were thinking, would that happen again for this war? And one law that was passed through Congress that significantly stopped all of those worries was was a law known as the GI Bill, or the Servicemen's Readjustment Act of 1944. This act was designed to facilitate the transition of 15 million World War II veterans to return home to a peacetime economy. More than half of the returning veterans continued their education at the government's expense. More than 2 million GIs will attend college, and this, of course, will initiate the demand for higher education, colleges and universities, institutions that would have historically only been offered to the rich. Veterans will also receive $16 billion in low-interest, government-backed loans for houses, farms, and businesses. Uh, Government investment in veterans was great. It was promotion of an educated workforce, and it will stimulate a post-war economic expansion. With all this economic security offered by the GI Bill, you're going to have a lot of soldiers start to reproduce very quickly, and the peacetime economy will lead to a population boom. 50 million babies will enter into U.S. population between 1945 and 1960. And the people born in this time period are going to be known as baby boomers. And they will have a profound effect on the nation's institutions and economic way of life. America quite literally got younger. And some historians have concluded that a lot of these baby boomers are going to be the same type of people that will be very politically active in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s. Even to today, uh, the baby boomer generation is reaching retirement age, causing a lot of people to question the validity of Social Security Act that uh, operates on a balanced distribution of age within a given society. So there are a lot of effects that we'll, we will see um, as a result of the baby boomers. Um, initially, this increase of children will reinforce the traditional role of caregiver and homemaker for the women. But again, the trend of employed women will continue. By 1960, one-third of all married women will work outside the home. Even though these women will be employed, however, this is not to say that they will not face tremendous amount of uh, familial pressure as well as societal pressure from the people around them. Um, and we're going to continue seeing that, especially in the 1960s, with the famous publication um, that talks about this um, this psychological phenomenon in Betty Friedan's uh, Feminine Mystique. So, of course, we have economic security by these veterans as well as uh, members of their new family, and this is going to prompt them to migrate outside of where that most of them 
uh, we're living before. The peacetime economy plus the GI Bill plus the baby boom will equal a high demand for housing. If you recall from the 1830s all the way to 1930s, we're going to have a trend of people moving from rural to urban areas. As we call this uh, process urbanization. But by the 1950s, you're going to see a process known as suburbanization take fold. And this is when a lot of these people are going to leave these cities, such as the Bronx, Brooklyn, Manhattan, to go to more, uh, you know, more isolated or more quiet areas and neighborhoods. Of course, this rise in the housing market will prompt entrepreneurs like William J. Levitt to develop post-war suburban neighborhoods. Uh, he will call such projects Levittown, and he will produce 17,000 low-priced family homes on Long Island, New York. And he'll do it very cheaply because a lot of these houses will be um, standardized. A lot of them will have standardized measurements uh, from the driveway to the dimensions of the overall house to the acreage of the backyard to even like the kitchen appliances and what is included in the kitchen will be very much standardized, offering almost a commune-like, um, you know, aesthetic that we've seen in popular shows like Leave it to Beaver and I Love Lucy and whatnot. And some people really appreciate that because for the first time ever, they're going to have something like a backyard. They're going to be able to have a street or a neighborhood that they can call their own. And this is, uh, for some, a way or a reawakening of the American dream. But of course, not everyone is going to see it this way um, because there's going to be so many people leaving the inner cities and the majority of the middle-class Americans will become suburbanites, this mass movement will have a very negative effect on cities. Um, these cities, of course, will lose all those uh, potential taxpayers and all those policies or programs or um, services will kind of be depleted as a result. As people will go and become more suburban, they'll buy cars, and things like public transportation will kind of take a hit. And we're also going to see an increasingly poor and racially divided community by the 1960s. De facto segregation will come as a part of a phenomenon known as white flight. This is when white people who have the needs or the economic means, I should say, of leaving urban or poor areas do so. And as a result, seg segregate um, communities. Uh, real estate laws also will ensure segregation as late as the 1990s. Now, Although uh, we can see, obviously, the social problems of this, the political problems of this are going to reach a fever pitch in the 1960s when a lot of these African Americans are going to push for their rights and try to raise awareness to a suburbanized class of Americans that are not exposed to the problems that the black community are suffering through. Um, and, we, and this is all due to the lack of exposure uh, caused by the suburban growth. Other migratory pro uh, patterns are happening such as the rise of the Sun Belt. This is a term given to a region that spans across Florida and California. Um, a lot of people are going to move to this area because of the warmer climate, lower state taxes, and of course some opportunities in working in defense-related industries. Um, this movement will shift political and economic power from one region, the North, to another. So of course you're going to have not only a particular class of Americans move down south, but they're going to bring their political ideologies with them. And that, of course, will change the political and electorate landscape of the nation. Um, and we will see this again have more of an impact in the 1960s. Now, we're going to switch gears here and talk more about Truman's administration with respect to domestic policy. Everyone um, kind of supported Truman during the war because he kind of inherited the presidency with the death of FDR. And many people kind of 
believed he was doing a pretty good job during the war. But now that the war is over, this VP has a lot of big shoes to fill. And as a moderate, he kind of wants to continue the legacy of the New Deal set by his predecessor, FDR. Keep in mind, he was picked as a VP as a compromise between two growing factions within the Democratic Party. You got the liberal New Dealers that want to promote and advance the uh, the legacy of FDR. More, you know, big government, uh, more policies that help the working class, pro-union, um, you know, advance a civil rights agenda. And then you also have the conservative Southern uh, Dixiecrats or Democrats that they'll later be called. And these people are, you know, you're, you're, you're the ones that we know about from the 19th century. State government, um, no, absolutely no civil rights agenda, um, and a little bit, you know, um, questionable about some of the the, the deficit spending that's going on. So they're still they're, they're st they still might be on board with unions, but um, they definitely are going to begin to question some of the liberal New Dealers. And it's going to kind of be a problem for Truman, even though he might have a majority, the Democrats hold a majority in both the House and the Senate during this time, he's still going to have to navigate between these two factions, not just the Republicans, but the, the, the conservative Democrats will become a problem for him. But despite that... Um, you know that that those that environment, Truman is going to urge Congress to enact a series of really progressive measures. He's going to push for national health insurance. Um, this is an idea that was set by FDR and was actually included in the original Social Security Act back in 1935. But FDR took it out himself of because due to its political controversy. Uh, in it, uh, Truman called for uh, basically a program in which. Um, you know, wage earners or taxpayer dollars, a portion of those taxes would be uh, set aside for the government to pay the health costs for people who are sick. And the theory went was if the government can um, pay the health costs to Americans, then they would have more time to uh, be economically productive. Um, the health care costs perhaps could go down in a regulated market like this. And of course, on the right, people are going to object about this um, because they're going to see this as one step closer to socialized healthcare. And in the you know the backdrop, the the foreign policy backdrop of the Cold War, anything that smacks of communism, socialism is going to immediately be politically questioned. He's going to advocate for an increase in minimum wage, which he will eventually um, be successful in obtaining even despite a, a Republican and Democratic, uh, conservative Democratic opposition. And he's going to want an additional bill to commit to the United States government in maintaining full employment. So those New Deal agencies that did employ um, Americans in the 30s, he's going to want to do that as well. He is going to manage to get an Employment Act of 1946, which authorized the Council of Economic Advisors, which is a team of experts uh, that would propose policies and strategies uh, of promoting national economic welfare to the president and Congress. But due to its progressive nature, a coalition, again, of Republicans and conservative Southern Democrats will hinder the passage of most of Truman's domestic programs. Uh, we will talk about that later on. Um, during his tenure, you're gonna, he's going to see a lot of inflation and strikes. Initially, Truman is going to urge Congress to maintain some of the price controls that happened during wartime in order to avoid inflation. So the Office of Price Administration, he really calls to kind of keep those prices um, stable and really kind of have more of a slow facilitation between wartime and peacetime economy. But again, the Republican and Southern Democrats are going to relax these controls. And as a result, there'll be an inflation rate of almost 25% during the first year and a half of peace. 
Um, this is, of course, going to upset uh, workers, um, and they're going to want, as well as unions, to uh, get their wages to match that inflation. And after years of wage controls, over 4.5 million workers will go on strike by 1946. Um, strikes by railroad and mine workers will threaten national safety. The war is no longer in effect. Uh, patriotism is not going to be asked of them anymore, so they're going to be demanding more of their wages. Truman, of course, will be see, uh, be you know, uh, forced to seize mines and order the army to maintain the operations until United Mine Workers will call off the strikes. So, again, for any president, this kind of labor strife is bad, especially one who seeks to at least appear to be pro-union. is going to be very bad for Truman during the early years of his uh, second term. Civil rights, he's going to probably advance most out of all of his domestic issue. He's going to make civil rights one of the cornerstones of the fair deal, uh, uh, I guess a collective term used for all of his domestic agendas. Truman will be the first modern president that will use his powers of the office to challenge racial discrimination. You could actually, I guess, give FDR uh, that, that title. Uh, for kind of desegregating the defense industry during World War II, but he did that under the heavy pressure of uh, A. Philip Randolph, a civil rights lawyer that we've discussed in the previous lectures. Uh, Truman, of course, needs to bypass that co that Congress, that you know, that coalition of Southern Democrats as well as Republicans, who would kill any type of civil rights bill um, in their committees. Um, in order for a bill to even reach the general floor, it has to be passed first by a smaller group of senators or House members and committees. So he knows that even going through the legal channels or the constitutional channels, so to speak, um, it would have been killed. So he starts to issue, like his predecessor, a series of executive orders. And one of these orders will establish the Committee on Civil Rights in 1946, which will investigate any type of uh, issues regarding this topic. He will strengthen the Civil Rights Division in the Justice Department, which will make it easier for uh, people in the Justice Department to hold people accountable or, again, to investigate any issues uh, regarding the races. It will aid the efforts of leaders to end segregation in schools, so, again, uh, promoting a pathway for them to at least... Um, try test case litigation with respect to the courts. He will end racial discrimination throughout the federal government, including the military in 1948. So again, all this will be done through executive action. And as we've known throughout American history, anytime a president that has issued an executive order will, of course, um, reach the ire of the American populace who um, have have been historically and pathologically, um, you know, suspicious of centralized authority. But again, um, what do you do when the government is doing uh, the right thing? We now know that that was the right thing to do, um, albeit not done through the, the, the traditional channels. So again, this really um, is something that is going to later be uh, a positive element to Truman's administration, but at the time is going to be seen as very, very detrimental to um, him, especially by the Southern Democrats as well as the Republicans. He's going to also urge Congress to create a Fair Employment Practices Commission that would, again, prevent employers from discriminating against hiring black Americans. Uh, legislation would be blocked by Southern Democrats in Congress. So, again, this poses a dilemma. Should Truman, you know, use the legal and constitutional channels and continue to propose bills that would inevitably be, be killed in committee? Or does he offer a unilateral action and policy to actually end discrimination. So it's it's a it's an interesting legal 
and controversial dilemma that Truman and many other presidents will continue to have throughout the civil rights era. All of this opposition will uh, reach its height when the Republicans gain control of the 80th Congress in 1946. They're going to gain both houses due to the economic or labor strife that we've mentioned before. They're going to push for tax cuts on upper income Americans, return to some of that uh, Republican policies that we've seen in the 1920s. Truman, of course, will veto both measures. Republicans will manage to pass the next amendment through ratification of the Constitution, and this is the 22nd Amendment uh, that will be ratified by 1951. This amendment, of course, will place a limit on the presidency to two terms in office. This is in, in direct response to FDR, violating the longstanding precedent that was set by Washington. But perhaps the most controversial act that was passed during this 80th Congress was the Taft-Hartley Act in 1947. And it was a very pro-business act, and it was designed to check the growing power of unions. One provision outlawed the policy known as closed shop. This policy essentially forces employers in a given industry to only hire union workers. Now, you can look at this policy in two different ways. From the worker's perspective, having a closed shop guarantees that their union has leverage over their employer and that collective bargaining strikes or boycotts have some meaning behind them. In fact, if there wasn't a closed shop, then employers could hire strike breakers or scabs, a practice that was widely rampant in the Gilded Age. From an employer's perspective, having a closed shop restricts their ability to hire people that they believe to be best for the job. In addition, a closed shop ensures that unions have a continual and sustainable population of people that will pay membership dues, which is going to be used for further strikes and boycotts and collective bargaining. For many employers, they argued, closed shops essentially lead to unproductivity and conflicts with labor. Another provision of the Taft-Hartley Act was outlawing secondary boycotts. A secondary boycott is basically a boycott of a business that is still providing services or goods to another business that is in dispute with a union. So it was an indirect way to pressure a, a, an employer to kind of meet the demands made by the unions. So I'll give you an example. If there is a strike on General Motors, a secondary boycott would not only be First, a boycott would be a boycott on General Motor goods, right, from the workers. A secondary boycott would be any type of company that would be a supplier to the General Motors company. So let's say, um, you know, a company that makes rubber for the tires or a company that uh, offers the wiring for the electricity or the lights or the glass or any other type of material made for the cars. Any um, auxiliary company that deals with Ford, that includes banks, that includes anyone, will be boycotted. And again, the idea is that those companies would be suffering as a result of this boycott, and then they would go and pressure someone like General Motors to actually meet the demands for their union. So this is going to be something that is outlawed under the Taft-Hartley Act. Of course, the final provision will give the president the power to invoke an 80-day cooling-off period before a strike endangering the national safety could be called. So again, this is very pro-business and so much so that Truman will sh will try to veto this, but Congress will override this veto and this will became, become a major issue that will divide Republicans and Democrats. Even the Southern conservative Democrats are still going to be relatively pro-union. 
so we're still seeing that divide between Republicans and Democrats at this time. So despite the fact that Truman will try to maintain FDR's legacy, his popularity will drop by the time the election of 1948 comes around. And Republicans are very confident of a victory due to the fact that there's so many factions within the Democratic Party, and they are going to attempt to abandon Truman and organize their own third parties. Liberal Democrats who thought Truman's aggressive foreign policy threatened world peace will form the Progressive Party and nominate Henry Wallace, uh, the former VP to FDR. Conservative Democrats who thought Truman's progressive domestic policy threatened the, fa the cultural fabric of America formed the State Rights Party, or Dixiecrats, nominated by government Governor J. Strom Thurmond of South uh, Carolina. And of course, Republicans will nominate New York Governor Thomas E. Dewey. And if you remember and recall from the election of 1912, the Republicans had a problem with third parties themselves. It's exactly what cost them the election. If you recall, Teddy Roosevelt formed the Bull Moose Party, and that's exactly what allowed the Democrats to score victory. So the Republicans who nominated Thomas E. Dewey hoped for an easy win. But due to polls projecting this easy victory, Dewey runs an unimpressive campaign. And despite the odds, Truman will tour the nation by rail, attacking the do-nothing Republican Congress with give-them-hell speeches, personalized speeches that appeal to the working class. Truman will miraculously win a divisive, decisive victory over Dewey by winning the popular vote by 2 million and winning the electoral vote 303 to 189. So this, of course, stuns the Republicans that have the majority in Congress, thought that this that it was an easy victory, and because of this momentum, Truman will see this as a referendum for his rights and referendum for his policies, and he's going to launch an even harder appeal to pass a bunch of progressive laws known as the New Deal. So fresh from this victory, he will launch an ambitious reform program. And in 1949, he will urge Congress to enact a national health care insurance program, federal aid to education, civil rights legislation, funds for public housing, and new farm programs. Again, keeping up with the FDR New Deal tradition. Conservatives in Congress will block most of these reforms, except for an increase in the minimum wage, 40 cents to 75 cents an hour. Again, Perhaps they learned from the presidential election that although they are so staunchly against the expansion of federal government and, and federal overreach, um, they still can't abandon some working class issues. Uh, fair deal bills will be defeated due to conflicts between Truman and Congress, and of course, more pressing concerns, or at least perceived pressing concerns of the Cold War. And we will discuss the origins of the Cold War and Truman's foreign policy in the next part of this podcast. See you later.